Hi everyone, and welcome back to the second official episode of Crimopedia. I'm your host, Allison, and I really appreciate all the support I've gotten since my first episode dropped. It is very surreal to believe that this is a real thing. Before we get started with today's case, I do have to mention that it is a particularly rough one to stomach. I myself do struggle even with some of the details. It involves the murder of a very young child, and if that's not something you feel comfortable listening to, I don't blame you at all. Please click away and I will see you for the next episode. I caution you with doing your own research as well. If you already know about today's case, then I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about, but I just figured that although a discretion warning is unusual for a true crime podcast, obviously everybody clicks on this podcast knowing that I'm talking about murders, disappearances, and, and things of that sort, um, I just wanted to give an extra warning uh, just in case. Okay, now that that's out of the way, I think we can go ahead and get started. James Patrick Bulger was born on March 16th of 1990 in Kirkby, Merseyside in England, and he lived there with his parents, Denise and Ralph Bulger. He had bright blue eyes with short blondish hair and a really bright smile. James was just a few weeks shy of his third birthday when he was brutally tortured and murdered on February 12th of 1993. Some have referred to this case as similar to that of the Pied Piper, who was a fictional character from Germany at the centerpiece of a medieval legend. It's said that the Pied Piper would be hired by townspeople to lure rodents away from the villages during the time of the bubonic plague, and he would free the citizens of the vector of this disease. However, if the Pied Piper wasn't adequately compensated for his work, he would play his magic pipe or flute and lure children away from their families instead. Robert Thompson is number five out of seven children in his family, and he lived with his mother and all of his siblings in Merseyside. Four years prior to the day in question, his father had left their family after he began seeing another woman who he'd actually met on a family vacation with everybody. After this, his father allegedly never spoke to any of the children ever again. Seven weeks later, the family had come home to their entire house being burnt down and they spent two months in a hostel. Robert Thompson's mom was said to be a heavy drinker and was very depressed. And who can blame her considering everything that had happened in their family? But there was significant abuse going on in the home and by all accounts, Robert Thompson's childhood was pretty horrific and he had no direction in life. Robert was also truant from school frequently. Despite him being only 10 years old, he had spent a lot of time roaming around on the streets late at night with friends, skipping school during the day, and even shoplifting when he could. It's estimated that approximately one-third of Robert's entire education he was absent for, resulting in him needing to be held back an entire year and repeat a grade. Former Detective Sergeant Phil Roberts marked about how Robert Thompson could easily portray himself as a perfectly nice boy with a charming smile. That was until his evil side came out if you rubbed him the wrong way even a little bit. 
Robert Thompson had a glare in his eye when you upset him that was hard for people to describe, but everybody who saw it knew exactly what it meant. John Venables was also 10 years old, living in the Merseyside area with his family, but he only had two siblings, an older brother and a younger sister, both with disabilities that required a caretaker. It was said that John would often be left alone to fend for himself after his parents divorced and his father left, his mother was made to care for her two disabled children on her own, and John, being perfectly abled, was often relied on to take care of himself. Venables would eventually meet Robert Thompson, but before this, he was actually taken out of Broad Square Junior School for his increasingly bad behavior. Venables was known to pull work down from the walls, hide under desks, cut himself with scissors in the middle of class, and eventually tried to choke another boy with a ruler. It has been speculated by some mental health professionals that John Venables engaged in these behaviors in an attempt to recreate sort of the outbursts that his siblings would have in order to gain attention for himself, attention that he lacked at home. After the ruler incident, John Venables was suspended from school for only two days, but his mother ended up keeping him out of school for a full 10 weeks. This made it so John Venables needed to be held back an entire year in his studies, just like his friend Robert Thompson. Having this in common, as well as both boys having chaotic home lives, it brought them close. Despite Venables being badly bullied by the other kids in the neighborhood, he was able to find close friendship with Robert Thompson, and soon the two were inseparable. On February 12th in 1993, Robert Thompson and John Venables were skipping school as usual and ended up at the New Strand Shopping Center, or just The Strand, in Boodle, which is a metropolitan area of Merseyside. Venables had been asked to oversee the care of the class pets that particular week, a set of gerbils. He was on his way to school to take care of them that morning before class when he bumped into his good friend, Robert Thompson. Thompson persuaded Venables to change his plans for the day, and being absent was something that they were accustomed to, so without hesitation, Thompson and Venables headed to the Strand and began shoplifting. They stole various items such as candy and a doll, some batteries, and a can of blue paint. After some time wandering around the Strand, picking up various items that they had shoplifted, Robert Thompson insidiously turned to John Venables and said, let's grab a kid. The two boys approached a young child and attempted to lure him away from his mother. After that young child's mother caught Venables and Thompson in the act, they decided to abandon ship with that one and continued searching until they stumbled upon James Bulger. Two-year-old James and his mom, Denise Bulger, now known as Denise Fergus, were headed to the Strand that day to run some errands. They were on the lower floor of the shopping mall inside of a butcher shop around 3.40 p.m. that day when Denise just briefly let go of James's small hand to do something. 
whether she was trying to examine something in the store, pick it up, try it out, or she was cashing out at the store, I'm not sure, but either way, by the time she was done whatever she was doing, Denise had effortlessly reached down to grab James's small hand again, but there was nothing but empty space when she did. While Denise was distracted for seemingly only a split second, John Venables and Robert Thompson managed to approach and coax young James by the hand out of the store where they turned right and were seen on CCTV footage at 3.42pm on their way exiting the shopping mall. Many years later, in 2018, Denise Fergus released a book titled I Let Him Go, where she describes how in a blurry panic after she realized her young child was not by her side anymore, she began searching for James and exited the store turning left, making her way to mall security. Meanwhile, Denise missed her son being escorted out of the mall by only a minute and a perfect 180 degree angle. James was taken by Venables and Thompson on a journey that day that lasted hours and landed the trio approximately two and a half miles or about four kilometers away. Meanwhile, Denise was already on a mission to find her missing son. A message over the mall intercom pleaded for anyone who may have seen James to come forward, but was unsuccessful. And so after some time searching by herself with some mall staff, Denise phoned the police. They initially expected that James could not have gotten far because just outside of the Strand was a really busy road, which was both a relieving and somewhat worrying fact in its own right. What ended up taking place in the next 24 hours was a relentless search for baby James and an entire night and day spent at the police station for Denise Fergus. As the initial stages of the search for baby James Bulger were being taken underway, Thompson and Venables took him to the Leeds and Liverpool Canal, which was their first stop of the day only about a quarter mile from the Strand. Some reports say that James was seen bent over the edge of the canal, facing the water and impending drowning. Some other reports say that James was dropped on his head by Venables and Thompson. What we do know is at the canal, James suffered injuries to his head and face and an eyewitness said that he was quote, crying his eyes out before the trio decided to carry along on their journey. It is unclear as to what Robert Thompson and John Venables were intending to do with baby James Bulger at this time, but what we do know is that the three of them were seen by approximately 38 people on this day, although reports do vary, but none of these people intervened except for two, although James was clearly in distress. Both bystanders that did challenge Robert Thompson and John Venables as to why they had a young child who was evidently in distress in their company were met with a story that Robert Thompson had. To one person's remarks, Robert claimed that James was actually his younger brother who had just fallen and they were taking him home, so not to worry. To another, Robert said he actually didn't know who this young boy was, but they were going to take him to the police station, so again, don't worry about us, we've got it covered. Interestingly, the police station is exactly where they all ended up, only they were across the street on top of a set of train tracks in the village of Walton on top of a steep bank. 
Robert Thompson and John Venables began senselessly hitting and beating on two-year-old James Bulger with no clues or indication as to why they began doing this. By all accounts except for his very own, Robert Thompson was the one who initiated and was very enthusiastic about this attack. After spending some time beating on James on this train track on top of this bank, Venables and Thompson sodomized James and stripped him of his clothes. They threw some of their shoplifted paint in James's face, some of it landing in his small eye, and they brutally beat him with their own bodies, but also bricks, stones, and a 22-pound iron bar until James stopped moving and subsequently stopped breathing. From this incredibly random and senseless attack, baby James Bulger sustained 10 skull fractures and a total of 42 injuries before he was laid across the train tracks, his head weighted down by some rubble, and left to be hit by the next oncoming train. After spending the day skipping school, shoplifting, kidnapping, and murdering a two-year-old boy, John Venables and Robert Thompson headed home. Thompson's home only being a few hundred yards from the scene of the crime. Two days later, on February 14th of 1993, a group of young kids were on their way to the train tracks to hang out when they made the gruesome discovery of two-year-old baby James. James Bulger had been dismembered by a train at some point during the two days he was laying there. Present at the scene was a box of 27 bricks, a blood-stained stone near a scarf, James's undergarments, and the 22-pound iron bar as well as some droplets of that blue paint. Pathologist Dr. Alan Williams said in an interview that although out of James's 42 injuries he could not tell which was the fatal blow, he could say for certain that James had died well before he was hit by that train. James had numerous skull fractures like mentioned before and extensive brain injuries due to the repeated blows by the bricks and the iron bar. The pathologist also noted that many of the injuries to the lower half of James's body had been inflicted while James was naked, as his clothes from the waist down were all discarded around the scene, and I'm assuming none of them had blood or anything on them, yet the scene was incredibly gruesome. This fact, as well as reports stating that there was a battery in James's mouth and potentially one in his rectum, which were shoplifted by John Venables and Robert Thompson, as well as that blue paint, bring light the possibility of a sexual motivation to this crime, in addition to some other appalling details that I won't mention here. Again, I caution you while doing your own research. Rewinding a little bit, before James's body was found, Detective Albert Kirby knew that the key persons of interest were two boys. He had thought they were between the ages of 14 and 18, given the CCTV footage captured that day of James's disappearance just before 4pm at the Strand. Police had released the details of James's last movements in an attempt to get people encouraged to come forward with information, but Despite their efforts and despite questioning over 60 young boys within their demography of interest, nothing relevant came up. 
That was until police were tipped off about John Venables and Robert Thompson from a woman who had seen the press reports on TV and contacted Merseyside police saying that the enhanced CCTV footage looked a lot like a young kid she knew by the name of John Venables. She also knew for a fact that he was skipping school that day with Robert Thompson. The police were kind of skeptical at first since both of these boys were only 10 and a half years old at the time, only just above the legal cutoff for criminal culpability in England. And like I mentioned, police initially suspected that the two boys were a little bit older. Detective Kirby was later quoted saying that no one in their wildest dreams could have foreseen that two 10-year-old boys could mangle James's body to such an extreme. This tip was reliable enough information to lead to Robert Thompson and John Venables both being detained and taken to separate police stations, Robert being taken to the Walton Lane station with his mother, and Venables being taken to the Lower Lane station, both being interviewed about the crime at some point during the morning hours of February 14th, the same day that James's body was discovered. Dominic Lloyd, representing Robert Thompson, said that he may have been the youngest person you'd ever seen in a custodial setting ever. It was also said by Detective Phil Roberts in an interview that when he arrived at the Thompson home and sat the 10-year-old boy down, the detective said, I'm here because of James's murder, and Robert Thompson only replied, yeah, I know. When John Venables was brought in, his defense attorney Lawrence Lee remarked initially at how much younger Venables looked than his actual age, describing him as cherub-like. Initially, during interviews, John Venables was extremely difficult to talk to as reportedly he threw fits, he cried, and he denied every question that police asked him with a simple, teary-eyed, we never. Did you take James? We never. Did you hurt James? We never. Venables was fabricating lies, placing him miles away from the crime scene during his initial interview, saying he was skipping school in an entirely different district and was not even at the Strand on the day of James's disappearance. Police then notified Venables of the CCTV footage they had, capturing him and Robert Thompson walking through the mall for hours, and the footage of them with James specifically. John Venables jumped out of his seat, screaming, crying, pleading, I didn't do it. Okay, yes, mom, we were at the mall, but we didn't grab the kid. But before even admitting to being present at the Strand that day, John Venables' lawyer, Lawrence Lee, knew he was implicated in the murder. After watching the CCTV footage of Robert and Venables taking James out of the Strand, he remarked that it appeared that the boy on the tape who looked like Venables was wearing a yellowish mustard-colored jacket. Lee simply asked Venables the next day, what color jacket do you wear? And all that Venables said was mustard. To Lawrence Lee, any doubts he had about the identities of the boys in the CCTV footage was completely overruled with evidence that it in fact was his client, John Venables, and that Venables knew exactly what happened to James Bulger. Detective Roberts recalls that Thompson was also incredibly difficult to interview. He said it was like pulling teeth. 
Thompson would lie, stall, lie, and then give a little bit, and then cry. And then he would lie, stall, lie, give a little bit more, and cry again. He remarks that during the interview, Thompson kept repeating, I'm getting all the blame, after selectively answering questions detectives presented to him. Finally, after numerous questioning attempts and multiple interviews, Thompson did start to crack, and when he did, he blamed the whole crime on Venables, saying that he was begging John to take the baby back. During the questioning of John Venables in the Lower Lane police station, police speculated that he would never admit to anything and would continue stonewalling detectives because he was afraid of his mom who was present during the interview. And so, as instructed, his mom hugged him and told him she loved him no matter what he had done, and just like that, the confession started rolling out. Venables had cracked, just like Robert Thompson. Also, just like Thompson, Venables started playing the blame game, stating that his friend was the one throwing bricks at James Bulger and not himself. On the contrary, Thompson's statements indicated that after they took baby James out to the railway track, he watched Venables horrendously brutalize James while he just stood by. Each boy had admitted to being present, but both were placing the blame on each other, not knowing that they were both doing the same thing at separate police stations simultaneously during their interviews. Despite the made-up version of events that they both presented to detectives during their interviews, there was enough indisputable evidence to implicate both John Venables and Robert Thompson in the brutal torture and murder of two-year-old James Bulger, some of which included blood evidence belonging to James present on both Robert Thompson and John Venables' shoes. They were both charged with the murder on February 20th of 1993 and were remanded in custody on the 22nd. The fact that they were 10 years old didn't matter because both Thompson and Venables, like I mentioned before, were just over the age of criminal culpability in the UK. And thus, nine months later, on November 1st of 1993, a trial began. In court, Venables and Thompson were only known as A and B, and during their first appearance in court, there was intense civil unrest and borderline riots outside of the courthouse with people shouting threats and expletives at the boys as they were escorted by van into the gates of the courthouse. The defense's job wasn't necessarily to try and disprove that Robert Thompson and John Venables had kidnapped, tortured, and murdered James Bulger. Again, because the evidence was so overwhelming in addition to confessions from both boys, but their job was more so to determine if the boys knew unequivocally the difference between what is right and what is wrong which the home office forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Susan Bailey, said that at the very least, John Venables definitely did. The trial only lasted 17 days, with both boys being 11 years old at the time. During the arraignments, it came to light exactly how they heinously murdered James Bulger and how they walked him across Liverpool on a journey that lasted hours before deciding for themselves where his final resting place would be. James Bulger, crying and bloodied, clung on to Venables throughout their endeavor, letting Venables hold his hand and carry him, seemingly not trusting Robert Thompson as much. 
Additionally, it came out that the boys were initially planning to grab a kid and push them into traffic on a busy road just outside of the Strand, but had instead opted for an excursion of much more insidious proportions. In the courtroom on the day of the sentencing, the public seats were all full and people were lined up outside the night before just to be present. Justice Moreland addressed them both and said that they had committed a crime of unparalleled evil and barbarity, the nature of which has now been ingrained in the history of Merseyside. Consequently, both Robert Thompson and John Venables were found guilty of the kidnap, torture, and murder of James Bulger, and they were sentenced at Her Majesty's pleasure, meaning that their sentences were indeterminate, a concept that stems from an idea that an indeterminate sentence is an adequate replacement for a life sentence. According to the United Kingdom's Power of Criminal Courts Sentencing Act, a person convicted of murder or any other offense where the sentence is fixed by the law as life imprisonment and appears to the court to be under 18 at the time of the offense must be sentenced to detainment under Her Majesty's pleasure. This sentence ended up being determined to be only eight years long for Robert Thompson and John Venables. In addition, they were both permanently barred from the Merseyside area, barred from contacting each other and the parents of James Bulger, as well as they must adhere to parole guidelines upon release. Unfortunately, the entire ordeal of James's murder, as well as the trial and the details that came out, led to Denise and Ralph Bulger divorcing in 1995, shortly after the trial concluded. It was said that Denise could not even stomach attending any of the hearings up until the sentencing. It was just too much. After court was adjourned, the decision was made to make the names John Venables and Robert Thompson public. As you'll remember, they were only known as A and B for the whole trial due to their age, but the judge also ordered that no new details of their futures in custody or subsequent lives as free men after release may be revealed. As well, they would both be given new identities upon their release with which they would use indefinitely to protect themselves as described in an injunction put forward after the trial by Dame Elizabeth Butler Sloss, granting both Thompson and Venables lifelong anonymity. There were many vigilantes who had made it known that they would hunt down the murderers and execute their own justice, most notably being James's dad, Ralph Bulger. The horrific nature of James's murder and how his body was disposed of indicated to many people in the Merseyside area and frankly all of England that Venables and Thompson were deviated, cold, calculated, and thus a danger to society. But to this day, it is still illegal to out the locations of both men formerly known as John Venables and Robert Thompson or to expose their new identities, and many people have been legally reprimanded for doing so. Denise Fergus, James's mother, says that it doesn't matter how much money and effort the authorities spend attempting to protect the killer's identities post-release. It will be nearly impossible for them both to hide their truth from their future girlfriends or drinking buddies. Because children under 15 years old in the UK cannot go to prison, they are instead sent to secure juvenile facilities. 
These facilities house young children who have committed crimes or are thought to be at serious risk of doing so, and there is an ambiance of emphasis on rehabilitation in welfare instead of incarceration. They are advertised as structured detainment with meals that are held at set hours, children are responsible to attend school at set hours, and they are locked in their rooms at night. However, upon further investigation of the facilities that Venables and Thompson were being held at after their sentencing, it was made public that the boys were being given regular psychiatry sessions, access to gaming systems and computers in their own rooms, personalized room decor including a fluffy Liverpool football club duvet, one-on-one -on -one world-class tutoring sessions to pass their A-levels, and supervised excursions to the mall or even on hikes. These excursions, called mobility, is meant for the child in question to be given access to small amounts of responsibility and slowly reacclimate into society. But these trips are supposed to happen later in one sentence, nearing release. Yet Robert Thompson was let out on a midday adventure just under a year into his detainment. People were enraged about this on top of the extremely lenient sentence of eight years for such a violent offense, and after some serious backlash, the courts were forced to take the sentence into review. After these proceedings, John Venables and Robert Thompson were ordered to be detained for an additional two years, increasing their sentence from eight years to ten years. A newspaper in the UK called The Sun petitioned to get their sentences increased again, which acquired over 280,000 signatures. This petition, compounded with the incessant media pressure, prompted the parliament to raise the sentence once again from 10 years to 15 years. However, this decision was repealed very quickly by the House of Lords, as the High Court and European Court of Human Rights cited that the Parliament may set minimum and maximum sentences for certain crimes, but the job of sentencing is up to the justices. Subsequent to this appeal, Venables and Thompson's sentences were lowered back down to 10 years. In 1999, when both boys were 16 years old, the European court decided after another review that the initial 1993 trial was not impartial, due to the fact that both Thompson and Venables were simply too young to understand the complexity of court proceedings. The report mentions that the public trial process in an adult court as a young child must have been, quote, intimidating. Lord Chief Justice Wolfe consequently stated that institutions were a quote, corrosive atmosphere for juveniles and decided to commute their sentences once again back down to only eight years, referring to the glowing reports based on the psychological evaluations done on both Venables and Thompson. It was said that Robert Thompson had accepted responsibility for his crimes and was showing great remorse, and that Venables had made exceptional personal development since the start of his incarceration. As a consequence, eventually Robert Thompson and John Venables were granted early release, and as of June 2001, when they both turned 18, they were both set free with new identities, accompanying documentation, and new accommodations. James Bulger's father, Ralph, has been denied appeals in the High Court attempting to block the early release of Venables and Thompson, but since they were released anyway, he has vowed to out their new identities and hunt them down. 
Many people campaigned alongside Ralph Bulger and Denise Fergus prior to Venables and Thompson's early release, pointing out that they had really never been punished at all, and that the institution they were kept at was much nicer than most schools in the area. People have commented largely on how their own perfectly innocent children cannot get their hands on tutors and private A-level training sessions without coughing up a large amount of money for them, yet Venables and Thompson were given them for free. There is a lot of doubt about how it is even possible that these two violent young offenders could feasibly have been rehabilitated under these circumstances. In 2010, John Venables reoffended. The cause of his arrest was kept secret, but once media got word that the quote, person formerly known as John Venables had been detained, they couldn't let it go. The public felt like they had a right to know what this guy had been up to and why he was getting in trouble again, especially considering the magnitude of his violent crime against James Bulger and the numerous doubts about the efficacy of his incarceration. This intense media backlash outed that the cause of Venables' 2010 arrest was possession of child pornography. He was found to have ownership of over 57 images, as well as engaging in sharing, downloading, and posting child pornography on a pedophile network. He was sentenced to two years in prison, real prison, for this offense. Interestingly, during the trial, it came out that John Venables actually had been violating the conditions of his parole since he was released in 2001. He had admitted to going out drinking in the Merseyside area with friends, which Denise Fergus commented on was especially troubling considering her young nieces themselves go out drinking in Merseyside. She mentions that they could have been right next to Venables. He could have bought them a drink when he is supposed to be nowhere near that area at all as conditioned by his probation. As well, under his new identity, Venables had been arrested for a drunken fight and drug charges, unbeknownst to police who he really was. As he was seeing his probation officer less and less, Venables was offending more and more. In 2005, his probation officer even met his girlfriend, who at the time was only 17, and Venables was 23. This fact has been speculated by many professionals to be the result of a sort of delayed adolescence in John Venables, given that most of his childhood he had spent incarcerated, and even before that he wasn't living a normal childhood life. But Others say that it's evidence of sexual deviation which was apparent from the moment that that group of young children stumbled upon James Bulger's body in 1993. In 2011, John Venables was actually granted an entirely new identity after on two separate occasions he had outed himself as the murderer of James Bulger to two different people. Mind you, in the UK, it can cost upwards of £700,000 to create an entirely new identity for one person. More recently, in February of 2018, the man formerly known as John Venables pleaded guilty to possession of child pornography once again. This time, he was in possession of an incredibly large volume of indecent images. 
there were 392 Category A images, which in the UK constitutes as any image portraying penetration. There were 148 Category B images, which is any depiction of a non-penetrative act. And there were 630 Category C images, which is described as any other indecent imagery of a minor. He was sentenced to three years and four months in prison for this offense. It is unclear if Robert Thompson was successfully rehabilitated, but at the very least, unlike John Venables, he has kept himself out of the public eye. Both Venables and Thompson were said to be experiencing symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder while incarcerated as a result of their brutal crime, including nightmares, but it's hard to say if this is evidence of remorse or not. What we do know, as put eloquently by Denise Fergus, is that their lifelong anonymity may protect Venables and Thompson from vigilantes, but it will never protect them from themselves. They will always know the true depth of their depravity. There will always be a chance, however big or small, that someone they know as their new selves may discover their true identities and out them. They will always have to look over their shoulders. Denise Fergus says that this in itself is enough to bring her some peace. You can buy I Let Him Go by Denise Fergus on 4james.org, which will be linked in the show notes. As well, you can donate to the James Bulger Memorial Trust using the same link. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's case. If you want to get in contact with me, you can message me directly through the case suggestion form on my website at crimopediapod.ca. If you scroll down the homepage, sort of near the bottom, it's right there. You can drop your email. Even if you don't have a case suggestion, you can make some comments. I would absolutely love to hear from you. Be sure to also subscribe where you're listening to this podcast today so you don't miss another episode. Until next time, everybody, I will talk to you all soon. Take care. Mm -hmm.